We've got to start prioritizing the things that are important to the American people. The problem is we've seen NPR and its programming often veer far from what most Americans would like to see. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Friday, March 25th, and that was House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, you heard at the top, arguing for an end to federal funding for national public radio. And today on the show, we are going to dive into that question. Should NPR receive federal funding? And we try to look at this question through the cold, hard lens of economics, which turns out to be difficult to do. But first, our Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator, 28%. Only 28% of Portuguese adults between the ages of 25 and 64 have graduated from high school. And just for a quick context, that compares to 89% of adults in the U.S. And Jacob, this figure just astounded me. I saw it this morning. It was on a front page story in the Wall Street Journal. And I just I didn't realize that there are places in Europe with a graduation rate that low. I, I, I know. And, and in fact, it is an outlier for Europe. If you look all around Europe, you know, basically everybody's above 50 percent, you know, well above 50 percent. And to me, it's, it's really useful right now as a reminder because Portugal, of course, is on the sort of bailout list. They're in trouble again this week because, you know, they're high debt and the government would and pass new austerity measures. And it's tempting to just sort of throw them into the box of screwed small European economies. You know, you got Greece, you got Ireland, you got Portugal. Uh, They're all the same. They're all going to need a bailout. But each of these countries is is sort of screwed in its own special way. You know, Greece, the government basically spent a ton of money and lied about it. In Ireland, the banks went crazy, and then the government sort of tied itself to the banks, and that took the government down. And then in Portugal, you have this long, slow burn sort of from having these low education rates, which leads to low economic growth and a rising debt. And now not only do they have a high debt, but because their graduation rates are so low, it means they're not really going to be able to get the kind of high paying jobs they need to get the economic growth to get out of debt. So they're in real trouble. Right. More so maybe even than, than Ireland, where graduation rates are much higher and they have a much more educated workforce. You could definitely make that argument. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks. Okay. So As probably most of you have heard, NPR has been in the news a lot recently. There have been sting videos, firings, more firings, a firing because of the firing. Outrage has been expressed on cable news. There's been charges of bias. And there have been these mounting calls to eliminate federal funding to NPR. NPR, you got to get out of the taxpayer's pocket because... Public radio plays an important role in our communities. I'd like to see NPR rework its business model and begin to compete for all of its income. This bill, which is going to adversely affect more than 34 million national public radio listeners... Nobody's on a rampage. We've seen how they spend their money. And so that's why we're saying it's time to prioritize. That, as you might have guessed, was a collection of lawmakers talking about federal funding for national public radio. So normally we here at Planet Money just cover the news. In this case, national public radio is the news. But we wanted to cover it like we do any story. And that is what we're going to do today. 
So before we get to the economics here, though, this is where things stand. The House of Representatives has passed a bill that would cut all federal funding for NPR, and that bill is on its way to the Senate. And here is how public money figures into National Public Radio's budget. About 2% of NPR revenue comes directly from the government through grants. On top of that, NPR gets money from local public radio stations for the programming that NPR provides. And those local stations get some money from the government, on average about 10% of their funding. Okay, on to the debate. Often when you hear it, it comes down on the one side to people saying, I like public radio, fund it. Or the counterargument, I don't like public radio, don't fund it. But there is a different way to think about this question, an economic way to ask, should NPR get federal money or not? which is what we're going to talk about today. When you ask an economist, should the government be involved in funding X, whatever that may be, or should the government stay out of it, they have a specific way of thinking about it. So we did a podcast about this a while ago when we talked to Charlie Whelan, who teaches at the University of Chicago's School of Public Policy. He laid this out. He says, there is one category of things where most economists would agree it makes sense for the government to consider stepping in and providing funding. These things are called public goods. And good here does not mean good like good or bad. It, it simply means good in the sense of you know stuff, like goods and services. So here's a clip from that earlier podcast, and it starts with Charlie Whelan. Public good is something that we all need that will make our lives better, but that the market will not and cannot provide. So a classic example of a public good be, would be something like a lighthouse. So think about a lighthouse, right? If the government doesn't build lighthouses, he argues, you're probably not going to get them. Even though everybody who owns a boat would love there to be lighthouses so they don't go crashing into the rocks, the private sector is not going to end up building lighthouses, he says, because where does the money come from? Who is going to make a profit from building one? I mean, imagine if there is no lighthouse and I say, you know, would you like to contribute to the lighthouse? And you say, well, no, I'm just a better sailor than everybody else. And you're just going to use our lighthouse without paying for it because we can't do any. You know, we can't say close your eyes when you sail past this rocky point. <laughs> so we've got no – with every other good, if you don't pay for it, if you don't buy the sneakers at Walmart, you just don't get to walk, them out, walk with them out of the store. And if you do, we'll arrest you. We can't do that for something like a lighthouse. Okay, this is Alex back in the present again. So what Charlie told you is that a public good has two main qualities. The first, it has to be what he laid out there. It has to be what economists call non-excludable, meaning there's no way to exclude people from using it. They can use it without paying for it. They can be what economists call free riders. And the second criteria is that it has to be non-rivalrous. So basically, when an additional person uses this thing, there's no additional cost associated with that. You build a lighthouse, it doesn't matter if 10,000 people use it or 100,000. Once you build it, everyone can benefit. Yeah, and this is unlike most goods. Sneakers, for example. You and I both can't simultaneously wear your sneakers, Dave. If you're wearing them, I can't wear them. If a million people want sneakers, you need to make a million pair. So public goods are a kind of weird special situation. Classic examples of public goods are roads, bridges, police, military. All those things, you can argue, are like lighthouses. All those things the government funds because it's hard to imagine the private market providing enough of them on its own. So when this debate about federal funding for public radio came up, we emailed Charlie Whelan with a simple question. Is public radio a lighthouse? What do you say? He says, yes, it meets both the criteria for a public good. So we brought him back into the studio to explain. Public radio is like a lighthouse in that it is non-excludable. So both of them 
are goods where if somebody doesn't contribute to provide them or upkeep them, they can still enjoy the benefit. Obviously, radio is the same in that the signal goes out. Anybody who has a radio can enjoy that signal whether or not they've paid for it. Okay, check number two. It's called non-rival. Something like public radio or a lighthouse doesn't get used up when one person benefits. Obviously, with public radio, if 10,000 people are listening, another 20,000 people can listen, and it doesn't diminish the enjoyment of the good for that first 10,000 in any way. So we talked with Charlie and two other economist types, and they all agreed on this, that public radio meets the criteria for a public good. So you might think case closed. The federal government should fund public radio. Only Charlie wasn't so sure about that. You know, I'm a strong supporter of public radio, but I'm not persuaded that it couldn't survive without federal funding. And it might be easier in the long run. I think other donors would probably step up. Would you step up? Oh, listen to me. I am a public radio member in three states. This is almost an injustice. So in Illinois, I'm a public radio member. We go to New Hampshire in the summers, but our house is blocked by this mountain. So we have to join Vermont Public Radio, which is what we listen to across the river. Then my wife got a job and was commuting, listening to New Hampshire Public Radio. She felt guilty on one of those pledge drives. So we joined that, too. So you believe me. (laughs) Uh, Charlie Whelan, we should also point out, is a Democrat. He ran for Congress at one point. But he says when he puts his economist hat on, the case for public funding for national public radio is not a slam dunk. And one reason, just because something is a public good doesn't mean the government should be funding it. You can think of some pretty funny examples of public goods that you wouldn't want anybody funding. Tim Harford had one for us. He's an economist and author. He writes a column for the Financial Times. If you imagine, say, that I... um I'm fond of pranks and I like letting off stink bombs in uh, public places. Uh, I mean, those stink bombs, they're a public good, right? You know, I can't charge for the pleasure of the stink. Uh, If one person is smelling this stink, uh, you know, other people can't enjoy it. They're not using up the stink for other people. So everyone sort of gets to experience. So this stink bomb that I've let off has all the benefit, all the properties of a public good. The only difference is, well... I think there's a pretty good case that people don't want the stink bomb. So once you've got something that has the properties of a public good, whether it's, say, NPR or a lighthouse or a stink bomb, you then have to say, okay, is it actually worth providing? Do people want it? Would they be willing to pay, if, if it was providable in a market, would they be willing to pay what it costs? So so that is one question to ask about public radio. Is it something that people want or is it more like a stink bomb? Is it something that people don't want? But it, let's just for the sake of argument say that it, public radio is something that some people want. The question then becomes, how much do they want it? And that question, says Tim, is really hard to figure out. Most things in life, most private goods, you don't have that problem with. They're not in this weird category of, of public goods. For a market good, you know, say a cappuccino, the cappuccino is the, there's a cost of production, there's a cost of the rent, the labor, everything goes into the cappuccino. Um, so the question is, is the cappuccino worth the $2 it costs to produce? Well, if I go in to a, uh, a cafe and I pay $2 for the cappuccino, I just proved that it was worth $2 it costs to produce. And this is one of the reasons why economists love markets, because by making these individual purchasing decisions, people are constantly sort of sending a signal, yeah, I, I value this at more than it costs to produce. When it comes to the lighthouse, what's it worth? They, then it becomes really difficult. Presumably, each ship's captain 
does put some kind of value on the lighthouse. Um, but how much? I mean, is it worth... Is it is it slightly convenient to have the lighthouse there, or is it a tremendous life-saving thing? How does that calculation change uh, depending on, um, say, the existence of uh, satellite tracking, uh, GPS? You know, it it starts to become really difficult to to figure out whether this is really something that's worth paying for. And even if you know a particular lighthouse might be worth paying for, presumably there's a there's a limit. You know, you don't want a lighthouse everywhere. So that's why public goods then become quite controversial and quite political because there's no market signal we have to make a political decision as to whether this is something we collectively would like the government to tax us and and pay for there's another wrinkle here when you're considering federal funding for npr if npr deserves federal funding because it's this weird public good that will be underprovided without government assistance what about other radio stations they are also public goods they're just like npr they're non-rivalrous they're non-excludable so what about kiss 100 or even television, broadcast television. Should The Bachelor get federal money? And no one seems to argue that we need public funding for those things. And why is that? Well, follow me, friends, through the looking glass. It turns out there is another way to view broadcast media and public radio where none of it looks like a public good at all. All right. So listeners, are you ready to have your minds blown? Okay. Think about it this way. So normally you think for a radio broadcast, the listener, you know, you're the consumer and the product is the radio programming that you're listening to but which the radio producer has no way of charging you for. But now think about it differently. Think about you as the product and the advertisers as the customers. The people who run a radio station can sell your ears to the advertisers and most commercial radio and television. Think about it that way. The product is the audience and they are selling that audience to the advertisers. If you're trying to fund a radio show, a TV show through advertising, you've effectively turned it from a public good into a private good But the customers are not the people who are viewers. The customers are the people who are actually paying for it, who are the advertisers. And advertising is rivalrous. One advertising slot uses up time that then can't go to another advertiser. And it's excludable. If the advertiser doesn't pay, you don't run that advertiser's message. So for a long time, the solution to that particular public good problem was, well, sure, it's a public good from the point of view of the viewers, But from the point of view of the advertisers, it's a private good and we can provide it in a private market and no problem. That's so confusing because now you take public radio, you think about it one way, it feels very natural, it qualifies as a public good. You think about it another way, all of a sudden it's not a public good. All of a sudden the the product is the audience and you're selling that to advertisers. Which we do. We call them underwriters. They're not advertisers exactly, but they they have a lot of the same characteristics. Let's just say that. So which is it? Is it an elephant or a giraffe? To some extent, it's, it's, it's a state of mind. It's in... It's in your heads. When you make an episode of Planet Money, are you thinking, you know, we have to produce this, the highest possible quality product and put it out there and for people to enjoy, like a a beacon of knowledge, much as a lighthouse is a beacon, uh, guiding people, uh, keeping them away from the shoals of sloppy economic thinking. If, If that's the way you guys are thinking, you're thinking like Planet Money is a public good. But if you're thinking hey, we've got to get our podcast download numbers up because we can we can monetize pretty soon. We can start charging for our podcast that's currently free. It's a valuable good. You know, Then you're thinking more in a, a straightforward private good model. Or if you're thinking of your sponsors, your underwriters, as you call them, you know, how can we maximize the number of people listening to Planet Money? Next time we have our meeting, we can justify our existence by saying lots and lots of people listen. Um, even if the content's pretty trashy, we could start broadcasting top 10 lists of stuff and you know, get a lot more people listening. 
you know, then you're thinking about that more commercial model. So, Dave, I mean, I, this might sound cheesy, but I definitely think of myself as a as a beacon. Really? <laughs> when you wake up in the morning, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm like I'm. I, my goal is to shine a light to help people understand, <laughs> and I'm I'm thinking about the people who listen to the radio and the and the broadcast as you know as, as the customers. Right, and, it, and we never think about Ally Bank, who helps underwrite Planet Money. We never think of them as our customers. We never think like, what do they want us to report today? And they've never called us to ask us to cover anything, but they underwrite us because Planet Money has listeners. And I, you, the rest of us, we are constantly thinking about how we can get more listeners. In Planet Money's heart, it is a public good. In Planet Money's financial brain, it gets some money sort of the way that commercial radio gets money. The more listeners, the more funding it can get. And more funding makes Planet Money a better White House. And the economist we talked to pointed out this crazy model kind of works. Public radio does pretty well. In fact, it thrives with just a small part of its budget coming from the government, which is another economic argument made against public funding. Clearly, the vast majority of public radio exists without it. And Charlie Whelan says this is sometimes how it goes with public goods. Even though the market doesn't provide them in the traditional way, you don't need the government. There are other ways outside of the government that public goods manage to get funded. He says, imagine a street in Minnesota with 10 houses on it. There's a big snowstorm and the street needs to be plowed. So... Plowing the street is clearly a public good. Once you plow it, everyone can drive on it. So the government could tax everybody and plow the street. But if the government doesn't do that, it's possible a few of the neighbors will get together and chip in anyway to have it plowed. You don't need all 10 households to pony up. If three or four of them say, you know what, we're going to plow the street, we're going to pool our money, then it still gets done. You then have a whole bunch of free riders, which is, of course, exactly what you have with public radio. But you've got a small enough, dedicated enough crowd who are willing to pay enough to keep this going. So one way that you can provide public goods is if you get a group of volunteers who are willing to tolerate the free riders, but there's enough purchasing power in that small, dedicated group to actually pay for the goods. We call that group the altruistic group that has enough purchasing power to actually do it. It's got a technical term. It's called a K group, and I have no idea why it's called a K group. But we that doesn't have... We, we call that group listeners like you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> call 888. You know, yes, it's the people who actually dial. That is the K group. Now, there's a famous story, perhaps apocryphal, about a K group of one and that was Howard Hughes. So apparently, this, certainly my professor used this as an example. If you go back to broadcast television before the VHS and the DVD player and everything else, if you wanted to see a movie, you had to either go to the movie theater or you had to wait till it came on TV as Movie of the Week. Well, apparently Howard Hughes, who had nearly infinite resources, wanted to watch movies late at night. He would call up one of the studios, in, the television studios in Los Angeles, and pay them a lot of money to show on television whatever movie he wanted to see. He was the K group. Now, that meant that the other <laughs> 500,000 people in Los Angeles got to tune, hey, they're showing GoldenEye tonight, right? It was just what Howard Hughes wanted. So you get 499,000 free riders. The movie still gets shown because there's one guy with enough purchasing power to, to get it on TV. So it, theoretically, if you had one super rich listener who was willing to endow public radio, you could, st you could have that many free riders and still survive. So... Clearly, that is the situation that public radio is now in. Public radio exists thanks to a very large and enthusiastic K-group. It also borrows a bit from the commercial model, getting underwriting. And that's why some people argue public radio doesn't need federal funding. 
Michael Munger makes that argument. He thinks NPR should not have federal funding because he thinks sometimes it's better when public goods are provided in other ways. Munger is a libertarian economist at Duke University, and he took us back to our original example, the lighthouse. The first person to talk about lighthouses was a man named John Stuart Mill. It actually turns out that in the 18th century, when John Stuart Mill was talking about the, the fact that lighthouses had to be provided by the public, when he wrote those words, 75% of the lighthouses in England were actually private and provided by all sorts of different odd arrangements where they would take up dues or they would have uh, subscriptions. There were ways of collecting that when the ship came into port. So because it was hard to provide lighthouses, people people were very creative. They came up with different financing schemes, and there were more lighthouses probably than there would have been if it had been a pure public function. So that's the kind of lighthouse you want public radio to be. A, let, let a thousand lighthouses bloom. That's a really interesting argument. I hadn't really thought of it that way, you know, that we're somehow we're, we're sort of stuck, that, that actually we're better off. Yes, it's a public good, but it's one of those public goods you don't want the government funding. It'd probably be better on its own finding its other way around the public good problem. There's a lot of economic research about voluntary provision of public goods, and NPR is just the sort of activity that might benefit from not having to kind of march in lockstep for a one-size-fits-all federal funding with constantly having politicians looking over your, your shoulder. There's a lot of local affiliates. They're, they're, they're partly funded by local organizations, by states, by universities. There's a lot of different ways to make nonprofits work. The counter-argument to Munger comes from Tim Harford, who, we should say, gets a paycheck from the public radio system in his own country, the BBC, which is paid for by... British taxpayer dollars. And he says, sure, there are lots of public radio stations now, but it may not be as much public radio as people would actually want, as the market would pay for if public radio were a private good like sneakers. So his argument is like, yeah, you got a lighthouse, but really the market wants a bigger lighthouse and wants more lighthouses. Tim Harford says that's an argument not only for keeping federal funding, but for increasing it. Maybe it could be a lot better for not much public money. You, you wouldn't need to spend so much time on your, on your fundraising drives. You know, the whole thing would all, you know, be painless. You wouldn't have to do all these mugs and sweatshirts and pens. And maybe the, the content could be just a lot better. You could have more foreign correspondence. You could be more in-depth, more hard-hitting, produce a better product. So that's the argument. Clearly, it is possible to produce some public radio, and some of the output is extremely good. But maybe you could do better with public funding. I think that's that's the only response that you can make. And and clearly, we don't know the answer to that. If you were given much more public funding, we have no idea whether it would all suddenly go into you know, higher salaries and more comfortable offices or whether people would actually hear it you know, coming through their radio sets, the higher quality of the programs. We'll never know that uh, unless suddenly Congress decides to give you guys a few hundred million dollars. <laughs> so I think you can just stay, say, we'll never know that. Yeah. I think we can just leave it. I don't think we need the unless. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Harford says that one thing that can make this whole debate obsolete, technology. Maybe there's some innovation out there that it's going to make it easy to charge people to listen to the radio, exclude listeners who are not paying. I mean, that's actually happening right now with satellite radio or with podcasts. A lot of podcasts charge listeners to listen. Or Tim Harford says technology could take you the other way and turn a lot of private goods into public goods. That's sort of what's happening with newspapers. More and more, as newspapers move online, they're becoming more like public goods. It's, it's proving very difficult to exclude people. The New York Times is trying it. They've got this new paywall coming in, but it's proved to be very difficult to get people to pay. People get around the paywall. 
and of course, once you're online, you're also non-rivalrous because I can read a New York Times article online. I don't use it up for you. So newspapers are actually becoming more and more l- like public goods. Tim, is is what you're saying that that because of technology, the the world we're moving into is much more of a public goods world? We, we're moving away from a private goods world and into a public goods world. Um, I think there's a there's a tendency to for that to be true, and the reason is a lot more of what we value now is uh, digital. It's available online. Digital goods. Computers are basically massive copying machines. That's what they do, right? Uh, especially when they're connected to the internet. Um, and so it's easy to copy stuff for free. It's the natural state of a computer. Uh, and that means non-rivalry. That sort of classic part of the definition of public good. So all these digital goods tend towards being public goods unless you can find out some way of excluding people and forcing them to pay. So to the extent that the world is more digital, it's also becoming more of a of a public goods world. And people either have to seek public subsidy or they have to seek all these sort of indirect ways of of funding things. But it, it is worth stressing that potentially, you know, these new digital technologies will allow all kinds of new ways to get paid for stuff. You know, we may find, we find, you can see this with Apple. They're plugging their computers into um, their offerings, iPad and so on. They're plugging their systems into the mobile phone, the cell phone billing system, and therefore finding a way to, to basically get paid, collect reasonably small sums of money. Uh, without people really worrying too much. So, you know, I think at the moment the tendency is for more things to look more public good-ish, but I don't think that, you know, that's a necessary truth. You could easily see that tide turned by new payment systems. We are very eager to hear what you think about this whole question. Is public radio a public good? Should it get public funding? Should it be funded some other way? Should it look for ways to turn itself into a private good? Please email us all your thoughts and questions to planetmoney at npr.org or find us on Facebook. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening.